Please be seated. This is a fun, uh, fun day, and uh, we are really blessed. <clears throat> I want to say a special word of thanks to Amber and her leadership of Discovery Kingdom. Please, uh, please give her a hug today. I don't think she's here, but let's. <clears throat> and also Shauna. So many of our division leaders are doing a great job. These volunteer leaders are leading these different areas and um, helping us to have a, a children's ministry that, uh, that is really awesome. It, it's, it's a lot of work to build a highly effective children's ministry. It's, it's a lot of work to, to build a highly effective any kind of ministry. And um, people have leveraged their time and energy and efforts, and it's just a, a blessing, the kind of ownership that our church has for this important area and this investment that we're making in the future generation. And, you know, one of the things that I'm particularly thankful for, a few weeks ago I was kind of walking through the hallways because I was not speaking in here and got to see um, people at work. And what I noticed and what I loved is so many men involved. You know, many times in churches, women are leading and are the vast majority of people who are helping in children's ministry. Well, we have a large contingent of men who are teaching and security monitors and they're really involved in our children's ministry, and what a great example to young men, right? What a great example for them to see uh, fathers and husbands serving and teaching and leading in the way that they do. So, so we're blessed. I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And if you're a guest today, um, we're thankful that you're here. And um, we're kind of interrupting a message series that we're in right now. The message series is called The Enemy Within, but we've got this special day, and I wanted to speak on the topic of families, and today um, uh, the title of the sermon is Families are Big Rocks, and some of you know what I mean. Many of you have been guessing what that means, but we're going to reveal that as we kind of go along here. You know, there's nothing harder in life than living it according to values. In fact, I, I would say the most courageous thing that we can do is to set out something before us that we say is important and then to actually push into that thing that we value. There's, there's this difference between proclaimed values. Proclaimed values are the values that we say we hold dear and practiced values. Practiced values are the things that we actually do. Is a value really a value if all we do is give lip, to, lip service to it? If we never really practice it, is it really a value? No, we can, have, we can say it all we want. But until it's incorporated in the fabric of our lives and we leverage our time toward it, then it's really, really not a value. Um, in Psalm chapter 90, the Psalm of Moses, the psalmist says, Teach us to number our days, Lord. Teach us to number our days. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And some of you may think it's kind of along the lines of time management. It's not really time management. In fact, I was teaching this in one of my classes at the college, and the, one of the students said, I don't have time for time management. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I understand, right? Well, really, I'm talking about priority management. I'm talking about setting out purpose in our lives, that God has set a purpose for us, and that we can choose to direct our lives a certain way, or we can have life choose for us. And so what we're talking about is intentional, purposeful living, and the Bible is just all over this. So we're talking about priorities. And I want to share with you as we begin some irrefutable laws of priorities. These are the things that I've learned over the years that I think are true. The first one is this, the law of perpetual projects. Do I hear an amen? <laughs> There's always something 
to do. There's always something to do. This is life in the 21st century. In fact, when you relax, the likelihood is is you're putting off something that needs to be done. And there's always something to do in our lives. In fact, your to-do list might be a list of to-do lists, right? That's how bad it gets, right? We've got categories of to-do lists, and then we have these to-do lists for these categories. And we try to go through those things, marking these things off each and every day, and, and man, it is, it is tough. There's always something to do. Not too long ago in USA Today, they, they did a survey, and they asked people, you know, how much time would you need in your day to get everything done that you expect to get done? And the respondents were, on average, they said that they would need 42 hours in order to get the things done that they needed to get done. As they looked at the list, they determined it would be 42 hours. That's impossible, right? So there's always this cloud hanging over our head. And life is, is learning how to manage that tension between what I can do and what needs to get done. This is really the irony of our modern inventions. You think about it. You know, the things that have been given to us in our modern technological world have been given to us so hopefully we can be more efficient so that we can have more downtime. So we have the computer. We have the uh, airplanes, we have the automobile, we have the cell phone, we have fast food restaurants. And so there was a time in which a person could get, in a 24-hour time frame, could get certain things done in that 24 hours. And now what we've done with our technology is we've not used it properly, right? It's been misused. And so what we now try to do with technology is we have become more efficient, not giving us more free time, but instead we've been able to squeeze more and more and more and more and more into that same 24-hour period. It's the great misuse and abuse of the luxuries that we've been blessed with in our lives. So you have to say, it's not technology. It's not, the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. Many of us are addicted to hurriedness. We're addicted to haste. And so we've got to figure out how to balance this tension because there's always something to do. Next is the law of competing Goods, as I like to say, competing goods. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, often my choices are between two good things. Not one bad and one good. If it was one bad and one good, that'd be easy, right? I'd try to do the the right thing or the good thing. So it's not often good versus bad. This is where I live, and I bet you live there too. It's good versus the best. Because there are things that we feel like need to be done. There's an oughtness to those things. There's a should be to those things. And they're very good. It's not like they're bad. They're going to make you evil. There are things that we ought to get done. And yet those oftentimes are the enemy. Listen. Those oftentimes are the enemy of the best. The good becomes the enemy of the best and the important. Which leads to the next thing. The law of the squeaky wheel. That which is urgent gets my attention. Now, you've heard this before. This is nothing new. Maybe this is just coming to you by way of reminder. The squeaky wheel is the thing that gets my attention. It is urgent. It must be dealt with. And so here we have this living of life under the tyranny, under the rulership of that which is urgent. Here's the problem with that. The urgent thing. Listen. The urgent thing is not always the most important thing. In fact... The things that are most important are the things that can often be put off. This is the subtle deceit behind the lives that we live. 
is because we think, oh, we can push off those things, our kids, our marriage, the things that are most important, those can wait. We've got to get this done. And so we're living lives under the tyranny of that which is right in front of us. We've got to put out the fire. And there's so many fires that we often don't get around to getting to the good things and the best things and the most important things in life. President Roosevelt had two trays on his desk. One was labeled important, one was labeled urgent. And whenever something urgent would come across his desk, this is what people would say about him, is he would take that urgent thing and he would put it in the important tray and he would leave it for a day and ignore it. <laughs> and oftentimes what he found, it's been written about, what he found is that thing that was so urgent, that thing that had to be dealt with, took care of itself. Many times it just kind of went away. Other people handled it, or it wasn't quite as important as it was deemed to be. That's the proper management of priorities in life. You understand that one of Satan's tools in our lives, one of the ways that we live lives that just end up being burned out and frustrated is... We, we think, we equate activity with productivity. We think because we're busy that we're actually being effective. Just because you're busy, folks, doesn't mean that you're being effective in living. Because you may be busy doing the wrong things. Or said another way, you may be busy doing what is less important than other things. So that's the law of the squeaky wheel. And then finally, it's the law of the Titanic. And this goes hand in hand with this. The law of the Titanic is this competition between doing things right versus doing right things. Now, some of us, some of you are compulsive about making sure that things get done accurately, correctly, in the right way. And you have a management process to your life. And you're very diligent, and you're disciplined, and so you can spend a lot of time making sure things are done uh, right, but possibly ignoring the right things. You say, well, why do you call this the law of the Titanic? Let me, let me illustrate for you. Let's say, for example, my life is a ship, and I'm heading along cruising out in the North Atlantic, and I decide that really what's most important for me is not to be at the helm concerned with the direction that we're going, but I'm more concerned about where the deck chairs are located. And so I spend a lot of time and a lot of business making sure that those deck chairs, we've got to have enough deck chairs for all the people on board. They've got to be lined up the right way. They've got to be facing out to the ocean. After all, they shouldn't be facing each other. We've got to have enough deck chairs for people, and they've got to be set up the right way. Here's the problem. If the ship is the Titanic, does it really matter how well arranged the deck chairs are? I mean, I, I, could, have, I could have the cleanest, most well-managed, most nice-looking ship at the bottom of the sea. And some of you, in your lives, your ship is sinking. And, and you're worrying about the things that are really minute as compared to the more important thing. You're worried about every jot and tittle looking the right way, and it's causing to ignore the more important things. Does it really matter if the ship is sinking, if the deck chairs are all lined up? No. 
doesn't make sense. If our ships are sinking, we've got to think something else about the direction of them. Where are we headed? Where are we going? What is life all about after all? Well, the Bible gives a lot of clarity about this issue. And I hope some of you today are just going to feel this spiritual sigh in your soul. Because what, what is happening in our day and age, in the 21st century, is that we are running and running and running, and the RPMs of life are creeping higher and higher and higher. We don't know how to say no. We don't know how to make discriminating decisions. And so we just kind of accept this, and we are pushed into this, this mold, this current that is sweeping us along. And what happens over time is what develops is, is what I like to call soul fatigue. Soul fatigue. It, it, it's not cured with a, with a night's sleep. Soul fatigue is a spiritual uneasiness. It's a spiritual unrest. And primarily it's there because of what is called incongruent values. You know that the number one stressor in life is not busyness. The number one stressor in life is where I say that something is important to me, but I don't live congruently and consistently with it. It's called an incongruent value. It's a conflict. It's an internal conflict. These rub against each other, and our lives live in such a way we say, man, this is important, this is important, but I never get around to it. And so we walk around with this inner lack of integrity, this inner brokenness, and over time it produces a spiritual fatigue in us. The Bible gives a prescription for how to overcome this kind of hurried existence. It really does. Read Psalm 23, that beautiful psalm. A lot of times it's read at funerals, right? It's not a psalm about dying. Really, It's a psalm about living. It's a psalm about living. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So if God is the leader of my life, then my life might look a little bit differently than the way it does right now. Because if God is the leader of my life, I will be free from the need for more. I'll have contentment. I'll have quietness. I'll have stillness as a part of my life. He'll restore my soul. This is the thing, but that's the question. The big question is, is God the leader of your life? Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4, this famous passage, the Shema, or it could be the Shema. This, this passage is recited every morning and every evening by Jews, by Orthodox Jews, and it's also recited at every worship service, every Jewish worship service in the synagogue. Listen to what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And Moses goes on to describe other facets of this making God first, keeping first things first. Let's unpack this passage here. How to keep first things first. First of all, it takes perspective. 
It takes perspective. Verses 4 and 5, look again. Hear, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. Now, this is, this is a direct contrast to the polytheism of Israel's neighbors, where there were many gods. What Moses is saying, what God is saying through Moses, is that the Lord is supreme. He is to be the center of life. He is to be the first priority of life. He is one. He is the Lord our God. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. A single-minded perspective is what is most important to living because it is from that single-mindedness that purpose flows and every other thing in life is added. This is their central confession of faith, to love God. Now, I don't know how it got all mixed up over the centuries, and it did, because legalism replaced love. But nonetheless, we go back to the original intent that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, or with all of our strength is the idea. Jesus used the same verse in that in that passage in Matthew chapter 22. Remember when the young man came to Jesus and he said, Rabbi, what is the most important commandment? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus didn't even blink. He referred back to this passage in Deuteronomy 6. Jesus said immediately, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He said, And the second is like it. And the second is just as important. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Crystal clear understanding that there is nothing more important in life. And, and guys, I just think that that leaks I think we lose that. There are so many competing demands for our priorities and our time and our attention and more so our devotion that we forget that the single most important priority of our lives is to love God. And how do we know that? Because we spend our times doing other things. We proclaim that we love God, but we haven't assimilated that love into the practices of our lives. You say, well, what do you mean? Daily prayer. When you jump out of bed, <laughs> you jump in the shower, you jump in your clothes, you jump in the car, you jump to work with no thought of what you say is most important. Is it really? Let's be honest, is it really? We fill our lives with other things. This is why this is key. How we define what is most important in itself is the most important question. You say, why? Well, this is why, two things. When we don't determine it on purpose, when we don't determine it on, on design, by design, what is most important in our lives, other things fill that slot. And those things we don't have to choose. Those things just kind of happen. Those things just get in there by default. And it could be things, truly, it could be things that are not all that important. It could be things that are very shaky, that are very insecure. It could be things that really do not serve you well. It could be things that promise but does not deliver. That's what could take place with this, number one, by default, priority. But then secondly, the reason this is important is that what you make number one determines what is number two and number three and so on. 
right? Because from that first priority flows all the other ones. So here's God's message to you this morning, possibly, potentially, is that restore my place and my priority in your life. Get off the fence. Decide, come hell or high water, you're going God's way that he will be the center of your life. So here's the question. What, what, who will be the center of my life? All right? So it takes perspective. Secondly, it takes conviction. Verse 6. I love this part. Verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Not just in your mind. Heart in the Hebrew mindset is the center of desire. It's the center of passion. Here's the truth about that number one. What I make, number one, what I decide is most important in my life, what is my center, the priorities of that thing which is number one are the priorities that I begin to take on into my life. So the character and the values of that number one become my values. So if work is number one, all the values associated with that singular pursuit begins to be incorporated into my life. If money is number one, then that singular priority will now assimilate in a way into my life where the values associated with that, and what happens is greed creeps in, and discontent creeps in, and materialism creeps in. I just ta I take on the nature of that which is, I say is number one in my life. It's just a natural, natural thing. So in God's economy, if God is indeed number one, we begin to take on the values that are important to God. And what I want to say to you today is that our families are right there at the center of those values and those priorities. Family is important to God. Think about the big ten, the top ten, the ten commandments. The first four were about our relationship to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no graven images or idols. Do not take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Right after that, honor your father and mother. And part of the assumption of that commandment is that there is a mother or father, <laughs> a unit in the home, which is active and responsible, that is leading the family. So here, the family unit is right up there. It's important to God. And so if God is number one, what flows right behind that is the value of our families. How are you doing in that? You say, oh, they're the most important thing to me. Really? How's that working in your schedule? How, how's, it, how's it working as far as actually spending not urgent time with your family, getting urgent things done, but instead important and qualitative time? How's that going? Here's the question with respect to conviction. What will be the passion of my heart? When God puts a passion in our heart based upon the priority of him being in us. So passions follow priorities. That's the, that's the deal. And, and Moses is saying, and these things shall be on your heart. Well, what are those things? Well, first of all, it's love God fully, authentically with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then secondly, right up there with it again, is family, which leads to my last thing. It takes perspective, it takes conviction, but it takes diligence. Please hear me. 
It's not going to be easy. Life pushes the other direction. Life squeezes out this kind of mindset. I don't know why. You know, the old preacher said, if Satan can't make you bad, he makes you busy, right? If he can't get us to do wrong, then he'll just get us busy doing the less important things. And that'll achieve the same purpose. So let's just get busy doing the less important things, never getting around to the most important things, the right things, the noble things, the pure things, the best things in life. It takes diligence. Look in verses 7 through 9. You shall teach them what? Diligently to your children. Sounds like work to me. Sounds like effort. Well, God, I thought this was going to be easy. I don't know where you got that. You, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Now, some people think that what Moses is saying here is that, listen, you talk about God all the time to your kids. And what can occur in that extreme is that we begin to force feed our children spiritually. Because the disconnect begins to occur, because it's not, it's a lot of talk, it's not related to walk. And so, really, what the writer is saying here is that at the appropriate rate, at the appropriate time, as we do life, that spiritual heritage, a spiritual foundation, teaching our kids about God is not to be some appendage, but instead it's when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up, it's a very natural and authentic. Your faith is central and key. That's the way that we teach our children as we do life is the idea. Not sit down now, I'm going to teach you about God. Your life, the way that you live it. Look in verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Or in other words, they shall be on your forehead. Now, the Jews took this very literally, and I just don't think it was to be taken literally. I think what God is talking about here is that uh, the assimilation of our faith should be such a, a part of our lives. It's in the very fabric of who we are. But the Jews actually had leather straps that they would put on their left hand with little boxes with uh, parts of the Torah would be in that little box. And they had leather straps around their heads, and they would have little boxes. They were called phylacteries. And um, they would have verses inside there. So they walked around looking really spiritual and looking kind of funny, too. But looking really spiritual, right? They thought that's what it means. And by the way, they could do that external kind of thing, totally separate and disconnected from the love of God in their hearts. And just missing the whole point. So the ideal here is that we must be diligent to teach our children and keep family in its proper perspective. Here's what I want to say. You can expect that the trivial, the unimportant, will disturb and disrupt the important. That's the idea that I hear here. We need to have the courage to see life differently. First, perspective. From that perspective will grow desires of our hearts that will ultimately lead to what we're talking about here, actions where we teach where God is in our home, and he is really, really important to us. So here's the question with this last part. Question, to what will I give my best effort? To what will I give my best effort? 
for some, your marriage is getting your leftovers. Whatever's left is what you give, and that's not much. Can a close and intimate and lifelong marriage be built on leftovers? No. For some, your kids are getting the leftovers. They're not getting the best part of you. They're getting that worst part, that hurried part, that urgent part, that part that gets them up and rushes them in the car to get them off to school. And we're just passing down a hurried existence from one generation to the next. Listen, I know life is busy. Uh, it's challenging, but that's the point. It's not easy. We are like fish swimming upstream because the values of this country, of our culture are just pressing in on us and we have to see things differently we have to have that perspective we have to have that passion that flows from that perspective and then we have to assimilate these things into our actions whereby courage we will actually work into our schedule what is really most important be diligent in keeping first things first and i want to illustrate it this way for you maybe some of you have seen it before seen this before robert i want to ask you to come up and help me title of the sermon today is Families are Big Rocks, and we've got a bunch of big rocks that we want to show you today. Life is very much like this tub right here, like this container. It is finite, it is limited, it is quantifiable, right? There's only so much that you can put into this container. That's the way life is, right? There's only so very much that can be put in there. And so we talk about the fact that there are some things that are really important, right? There are some things that really should be a part of our lives. And of course, one of those is our faith, right? Our faith should be really important to us. And this is a really big rock. <laughs> our faith should be a part of us, right? In fact, we're saying that it should be central. It should be the most important thing. Our family is very important, obviously. We've just said that. Our family is really important. Friends. So think about these things. Our faith, our family, our friends. These are the relational dimensions of our lives. Wouldn't we say that relationships should be the most important? That they should be in here? Well, but there are other priorities, other responsibilities, other tasks. They're not as important, but boy, they're kind of important, right? They're not as big, but our jobs... Our careers, we've got to build a career, and some of this is overlapping, right? One way we take care of our family is by being responsible in our jobs. Our church, we need to be responsible in our church. That's important, too. Well, our community, we ought to be good citizens of our country that God has blessed us with. We ought to be involved in serving and helping other people. So there's already a lot of big things in here, a lot of important things, but boy, it doesn't stop there. Because I've got responsibilities. Lots of responsibilities. Well, what do I have to do? I have to drive the kids to school every day. I have to make breakfast and make lunch and make dinner. I have to change diapers. <laughs> I don't have to, but some of you guys have to. Thank the Lord. <laughs> but I've got all these other responsibilities that are in my life. And boy, life is beginning to look pretty full at this point, right? Well, it's not quite full yet. It's getting there. 
There's dozens and dozens of other tasks that we have that are a part of our lives. We go, man, we've got to get these in too, right? That's getting pretty full. It's getting a little overwhelming. But it's not full yet. Why? Because we believe there's always room for more. There's always room for more, right? So we fill in all these little gaps. Fill in every little margin. Every little ounce is filled in. So now life is lived to the fullest, as some people would say. And now it's full. And people would say, well, the moral of that story is that there's always room for more, right? (laughs) We can always fit more in. No, that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is get the big rocks in first. Right, Because if you don't get them in first, guess what? Life fills up. It gets all filled up. And then what happens? You don't have room for the big things. You don't have room for faith. You don't have room for family. You don't have room for friends. And that's what matters most. Here's what I've learned these little things, they take care of themselves. <laughs> Somehow they just jump in the basket. I don't have to worry about them. I don't have to go looking for them. I don't have to have any purpose or any tension surrounding them. They take care of themselves. It's these bigger things, the most important things, that I often neglect. So here's the question. Maybe it's a good reminder. Some of you are pushing into your relationship with God. You go, man, I'm, I'm walking the walk. I'm doing the best I can. Good for you because, boy, there's a lot of people in this world that are struggling with that very thing. What will be the center of your life? What will be the one thing from which everything else flows that gives meaning to all the parts of your life? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Everything else will take care of itself when we get that right. And all the burdens and all these rocks that over time, man, when they're combined together, they start weighing on us. All these things will be lost in perspective to our relationship to God through Christ Jesus. What will be the center of your life? What will be the passion of your life? What do you be really passionate about? And then finally, What will be the practices of my life? To what will I give my best effort? Maybe today is a day for you to re-up, to refocus, to recalibrate. When we lived in Orlando, um, I was new to going to the beach. I mean, I was raised in North Texas. I've never been around the beach that much. We moved to Orlando. We spent five years in Orlando. First time we went to the beach, of course, Tammy had been many times. I, I started going out in the water, and I'm flailing around the water having a great time. And, you know, I'm out there. I don't even know how long it is. And I look back, and all of a sudden I can't see Tammy. And I don't see things that look familiar. 
so obviously I had drifted. Now, I didn't know if I drifted north or drifted south. I didn't know where I was. So I got out and I started walking. And sure enough, I walked the wrong direction. <laughs> and I went that way for a few minutes and said, I must be going the wrong way. Turned back around, went the other way. Finally found Tammy. And I was like, I was lost. She was like, oh, yeah, you were? <laughs> I could have been eaten by a shark and you wouldn't have even noticed, right? <laughs> And I went back to the church and I told some people that story and they said, oh yeah, boy, you've always, when you're out in the Atlantic, you've always got to make sure you have a fixed point on the beach because that fixed point will bring you back when you drift away. And maybe that's what today is for you. This is the fixed point and you need to come back to it. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, thank you for the blessing of the clarity of, of the instruction that you give us. Thank you, Father, that you're crystal clear as far as what should be the devotions, passions of our lives. And from those, all other things flow. From those, life just seems to work out. So for those who may be new to church, new to faith, I pray, God, that they would they would with absolute clarity build their lives upon the foundation of their faith in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us to have the courage and strength to love you first. And then from that love, Father, the love and devotion to our families would take place. That in every way, we would give you who we are. We would devote ourselves to what is most important on this earth. As Mike comes and sings, Father, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would bless us, and that, Lord, your word would just be um, cemented in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Listen to this song. She spins and she sways to whatever song plays Without a care in the world And I'm sitting here wearing the weight of the world on my shoulders It's been a long day and there's still work to do She's pulling at me saying, Dad, I need you there's a ball at the castle, and I've been invited, and I need to practice my dancing. Oh, please, Daddy, please. So I'll dance with Cinderella while she's here in my
said dad's the weddings still six months away but I need to practice my dancing so please daddy please so I God bless you all. You're dismissed. Thank you for being here.